All right, I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we praise your glorious name this morning. We thank you, God, for who you are, sovereign King, glorious Lord, our only Savior and hope. God, we praise you. We honor you this morning. We have gathered, Lord, in your name to to give you glory, which is due you, and to give you thanksgiving and to express our gratefulness, Lord, to you for all that you have done for us in your precious Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the shed blood of your Son, Jesus. We thank you, God, for the great redemption that you have wrought with your own hands. Lord, how you have bought us back from sin and delivered us from the dominion of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of your dear Son. Lord, that you have given us your blessed Holy Spirit and filled our lives with your grace and your peace and your joy and your kindness. God, we thank you. We are so very grateful. Oh, Lord, we uh, ask that you would open the eyes of our heart this morning as we study your word. God, as we peer into your holy truth and, and examine, Lord, who you are, what your purposes are. Lord, why you have made us, why we are here, God, help us to see. Give us eyes to see, God, and ears to hear. Help us, Lord, to be very careful how we walk and how we live and to glorify you with all that we say and all that we do. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word. We thank you for your love and your kindness to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Okay. so with that, we're back in our study of Ephesians. Um, last week we got through Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. Today we're going to take up in verse 10 and following. And um, I'm going to go ahead and read... Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 through verse 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth 
to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Amen? Okay, so we've come to a transition in the, in the book here where you remember that Paul had formerly been speaking uh, about the Spirit-filled life. And uh, starting there in chapter 5 at verse 18, he begins a discussion and he says, Be not drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And then he goes into a long discourse about what being filled with the Spirit looks like. And how in our Christian practice, we live out a spirit-filled life. Of course, you recall that he gets to verse uh, 21 of chapter 5, and he says, And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then he goes through a discussion about what it means to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And that discussion uh, goes on all the way through chapter 6, verse 9. And so through that discussion, he's saying, Wives, be subject to your own husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters. And masters, do the same things to them. And so he's gone through this discussion addressing specific Stations or offices in the Christian life that we all fulfill and addressing what it looks like to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Well, now he gets to chapter 6, verse 10, and he uses this word. He says, finally, finally. In other words, I'm bringing these things to a close. I'm bringing my my letter to a close. And uh, in so doing... He wants to uh, summarize some things that he said by using the analogy of warfare and applying that to the Christian life. And so he's going to go through this brief discussion about the Christian life as warfare, the Christian life as a battle. And if you will, this is a very rich picture of the struggle that we face as Christians. Before I dive off into this text, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 and following, I wanted to remind you of some of the truths that Paul has presented to us in the book of Ephesians, and specifically some truths that are going to have relevance to his discussion here in this text. Remember that Ephesians, really, you could break the book into two parts. The first part is chapters 1 through 3. The the second part is chapters 4 through 6. The first part, chapters 1 through 3, is a discussion about doctrine. It's a discussion about our position in Christ. It's a discussion about spiritual realities. Remember that I've told you several times that in the book of Ephesians, there's not one single command or instruction of a practical application that's given in the first three chapters of Ephesians. Not one single place in Ephesians uh, 1 through 3 does Paul say, do this or do that, or give some kind of practical application. It's all doctrinal in nature. He's talking about spiritual realities. And uh, we talked about these different themes that are present in the book of Ephesians. Uh, That in those first three chapters, 
Paul has themes um, uh, like the riches of Christ. And he talks about the idea of being in Christ or being in Him. And uh, like he says uh, in chapter 1, he says, In Him we have uh, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Right, Chapter 1, verse 7. And there's this theme going through uh, the book of Ephesians of being in Christ or being in Him. And there is this theme of the riches of God's grace that Paul continues to bring up. And he has told us of all of these marvelous spiritual blessings that we have. Uh, Ephesians 1, 7, 1, 18, 2, 7, 3, 8, and 3, 16. All mention the riches of God's grace. And you remember when Paul is describing those, he describes them as the surpassing riches of the grace of God. And he uses these superlative terms that talk about these riches of grace that have been granted unto us that this is a past tense thing, that these have been given to us, that that all the spiritual blessings of God are ours in Christ in the heavenly places, he says. Uh, There's another theme that runs through the book, the, the idea of the mystery of the gospel, that which had been kept hidden for ages past, but now has been revealed. And uh, that that mystery was specifically that now the Jew and the Gentile were made one in Christ and the dividing wall of hostility had been torn down. And now we, we, the Gentile, with the Jew, are all one building where God lives by His Spirit. And uh, there are these themes that are in Ephesians. But I wanted to take you back and, and discuss with you... Um, this idea of the purpose of God in our salvation. Now, this is going all the way back to uh, 2004 when we first began our study in the book of Ephesians. And uh, we were talking about the idea of predestination and so on, which is presented in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and following. And uh, we were talking about the fact that um, God has a purpose in salvation, if you will, turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and I just want to briefly point that out to you. There he says verse 3 and following, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. You see, he's talking about all of these spiritual blessings that have been given to us in Christ. Namely, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless. We would get to partake in his character of holiness, of blamelessness. And it says, in love he predestined us. In love, He set our destiny beforehand. Right? He goes on. uh, As adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, He adopted us into His family and made us His children, it says, according to the kind intention of His will. And look at the next phrase. He says He did all of that to the praise of the glory of His grace. So why did God work all these marvelous, wonderful realities in Christ? Why did He do that? 
that we would be a people to the praise of the glory of his grace. That's why. So that when we Christians would recognize the wonderful work that had been wrought in Christ for us, we would praise the glory of his grace. We would look at God's grace and we would stand in awe and in wonder and in thanksgiving. And we would sing praises to his name and glorify him for what he has done for us. Helpless sinners without God and without hope in the world. Being redeemed by the precious blood of Christ in whom we have redemption. Amen? And so there's this this idea that God's purpose in saving us and working this redemption is to glorify His grace. To magnify His grace, His undeserved favor that He gives, His gracious love and kindness. So that in salvation, what do we see? We see the gracious love and kindness of God being expressed to those who are undeserving. And then again, this is repeated. Uh, Looking at chapter 1 and verse 13, it says, In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Look what it says. To the praise of His glory. Right? So why is it that after listening to the truth to the gospel, and you had believed that God sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise? Why did He work that good work of eternal security? Why did He do that? To the praise of His glory. That when we saints consider how secure we are in Christ now because He's given us the Holy Spirit as a pledge with a view to our redemption, right? That we would glorify Him. That we would praise Him. That we would lift Him up and thank Him for the security of our salvation. Right? You see, this is a theme with God. It is that He does everything He does for the praise of His own glory. You know, mountains and hills and trees and valleys and planets and stars and all of those things (laughs) are very wonderful and very beautiful and very profound. But what must be the being like who speaks and they all come into existence? Amen? Amen. When you think about what the majesty of such a being must be like, okay, you get the idea of the praise of the glory. Just the excellencies that exude from his presence. Something far beyond our comprehension. Right, But you see, God is working this great work of redemption, this great work of salvation, this great work that He's doing in the church is to the praise of the glory of His grace. Okay, So when we go into this text here and we see the Christian life as warfare, we need to remember that there's a purpose in it all. There's a purpose in it all. And the purpose for us is that we would be a people to the praise of God's glory. In fact, that's who the church really is. Whether she believes it or not, she indeed 
is a people who have been chosen, predestined, adopted into the family of God by the kind intention of His will to the praise of His glorious grace. That's who they are. Okay? They have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise to the praise of His glory. Okay? That we would praise His glory. What is His glory? His glory is the manifestation of all of His wonderful character. So that God is so glorious that no man can even see Him and live. Scripture says that He lives in unapproachable light. Because it's just the nature of God. He's, he's all surpassing in His glory and in His excellence. His characteristics are so powerfully beautiful that the eye cannot even look upon Him. Okay? So, in our salvation, God has this purpose that He would be glorified. That men and angels would look at what God has done in Christ and in the church and they would glorify God for His grace. Okay? Well, as Paul goes through the book, he brings this up again and again in, in different ways. And uh, <clears throat> when he gets to uh, chapter 2, you remember chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, he goes into this whole discussion about salvation and how it happens. Remember that? In chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, Paul's talking about salvation and how it happens with the individual. And then in verses 11 of chapter 2, verse 11, through the end of chapter 2, he's talking about how that's affected the church corporately. Okay? But in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, when he's talking about how salvation happens, he talks about our former nature. Look at chapter 2. There. In verses 1 through 3, it says, And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to who? The prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so Paul there, he discusses our former state. And he says that we were dead in our transgressions and sins, and that we walked after the ruler of the, or the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, he says, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. And so he introduces into the discussion of salvation this being. Who is this being? Well, this being is the prince of the power of the air. He calls him the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay, who's he referring to? Satan, right? And so now, in chapter 1, he's talking about all these great marvelous realities of salvation. In chapter 2, he begins to talk about how that works in the life of the individual and how that we're dead in our transgressions and sins. But then he brings up this whole concept of the fact that there is this powerful being which is at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay? <clears throat> We're going to see how just how relevant that is in the following passage in chapter 6. But I want to point you to something else. You remember when we got to chapter 3, there was a discussion in verses 10 and 11 <clears throat> that goes something like this. 
Paul's talking about his preaching of the mystery of the gospel in uh, verses uh, 6 and through 9. And then he goes on in verse 10, he says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, remember when we went through that, that there was this discussion about now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to who? To the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Now Paul brings these heavenly beings into, into, into view again. Except now he's not just talking about the evil one or Satan, but he's talking about these rulers and these authorities in heavenly places. And, and here is described the whole host of, of angels. Okay? Uh, could even be holy angels as well as fallen angels. But either way, they are angelic authorities. Angelic rulers and powers. Okay? You see, this is a theme in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, he talks about Satan being the prince of the power of the air. Here he's talking about the church being a demonstration of God's wisdom to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. Okay? Well, when we get to chapter 6, verse 10 and following, and he begins to talk about the Christian life as warfare, he opens our eyes to see that our struggle isn't with each other, but that our struggle is with what he calls spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. Okay? And he brings these angelic beings into view again, including Satan. And he begins to discuss how in the great battle, in the great war that's being waged, that these are key players, okay? And I wanted to remind you of that. I wanted you to remind you, before we begin this discussion about Christian life as warfare, Christian life as a battle, don't just think that you're in the fray for no reason. There is a great purpose behind this great struggle, Okay, which I'm going to start referring to as the angelic conflict. Okay, you see there is a conflict going on in the heavens. And we have a great part to play in that conflict. What is that part? Look at Ephesians 3.10. It shows you what our part to play is in the conflict. That now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the rulers and authorities and principalities in heavenly places. We are showing the wisdom of God through our lives. Somebody's watching the way you live. And it's not just your neighbor. Amen? Amen. You see that? Can you see that in the text of Scripture? Okay. Well, um, I want to remind you of one other piece of the puzzle. Look at Ephesians 4. And specifically, we'll look at verse 17 and following. Remember these words? We talked about these for many, many, many weeks. He says, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. 
And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Okay? Now remember that in the midst of this discussion of this manifold wisdom of God being made known to the principalities and powers, Paul shifts the whole manner of his discussion in the book of Ephesians in chapter 4, verse 1. In the first three chapters, he's saying, these are all these realities about salvation. This is who we are in Christ. This is what God has given us in Christ. We have all these riches. We have all of this fabulous uh, understanding of what God has done for us in Christ. And now in chapters 4 through 6, he's going to say, this is how you apply it. This is how you live it out. He's going to give us all of this practical instruction, which he's been going through um, for the last... Uh, Three chapters, but the point is, is that <clears throat> in this discussion, Paul is is saying to us, he's showing us that we can no longer live like the Gentiles live. Now we've been redeemed, we've been bought with a price, we've been called to be a people of God's own possession. We've been called to be a, a people who are holy and blameless in the sight of God. So therefore, we can no longer live in our sins. That we have to put on the new man and lay aside the old self. That we have to forsake our sins. That we have to forsake all of that evil, wicked way that we used to walk when we followed the prince of the power of the air. And now we have to put on the new man and be made new. Because if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away and new things have come. And what does that look like in your life? Well, Paul's been explaining that to us for for three chapters. Right? So, remember that there is a very specific way that God intends for us to live. And when we do so, we do make known His manifold wisdom to the principalities and to the powers. And we are also, when we live according to the Spirit and walk according to the Spirit and are obedient to God, we are, by practical demonstration, a people to the praise of God's glory. When the angels look at us and they see a life of holiness and love and kindness and patience and meekness, uh, a people who are ready to sacrifice, to love others, and to love with the pure love of Christ. When the angels and the demons see that, they stand in awe of the wisdom of God. And they say, how could a sinner do such a thing? Right? Well, <clears throat> I wanted to remind you of some of those realities that are in the book. Because this is all the ammunition that Paul's been giving us to really understand what he's going to say finally. You see, this is the final piece. 
of his letter. He wants to bring it to a close, and he's going to do that by talking about this warfare. Okay? I remember last week I was asking if everybody realized we were in a war and in a battle. And I kind of said, raise your hand. I said, how many people realize you're in a battle? And they all raised up their hand. Right? Because you don't have to be a Christian long before you realize you're in a battle. Amen? As a matter of fact, many of us knew we were in a battle before we even became a Christian. (laughs) As a matter of fact, it was the throes of warfare that brought you to Christ. Amen? Well, with that, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord, he says. He says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, think about what Paul is saying here. Well, for one thing, he's saying, be strong. He's saying, you Christian, be strong! Right? But we all know that our strength is but weakness. Amen? So Paul doesn't leave us alone to be strong, but he says be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Amen? Having given them, that is the Ephesians, such lengthy instruction in how to live the Christian life, he realizes their great dependence on God to whom he points them to find the strength they need to be victorious in the battle. Now, you know, we're going to get this whole discussion from Paul about this great warfare that we're in. How will we ever be victorious in such a struggle if we are not strong in the Lord? Amen? How are you ever going to put off the old man and put on the new man and stop speaking falsehood and stop stealing and start living a life of love and being an imitator of God and putting off immorality and foolish talking And all of those things which you're so naturally accustomed to, how are you ever going to do that if you don't do that in the strength of the Lord? How are you ever going to live this Christian life by faith? I mean, consider all the things that Paul has instructed us as Christians to do in these last chapters. How are we ever going to live up to such a standard? How is a husband ever going to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her if he doesn't do that in the strength of the Lord? You remember how I've told you over and over and over and over and over again, all through this whole section, Ephesians 4 through 6, that these are supernatural commands that you cannot fulfill on your own. You can only do these things by the strength that God gives by His Spirit. Amen? And we know that. We know that we're utterly dependent on God to live the Christian life. Amen? Well, listen to what Paul's saying. He's saying, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might because you're in a great war. You're in a great battle. And if you, if you have any hope to have victory, you must do it in the strength of the Lord. Amen? How will you, a mere man, Contend with the rulers, the powers, and the world forces of this darkness and the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. How will you do that? How will you wage war against such an enemy? 
lest you do it by the strength of the Lord. Amen? Indeed, we cannot. Indeed, we cannot. We need God's strength if we're going to stand in this battle. We need God's strength if we're going to be victorious. Amen? Amen. In fact, Paul now begins a short discussion bringing the analogy of warfare to apply to the Christian life. In this warfare, he exhorts them to find their strength in the Lord and not in themselves. This is a theme in the writings of Paul. We cannot live the Christian life apart from divine grace to empower us and to grant us victory against our foes, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Do you know who your enemy is? I just denoted that for you. The world. The flesh. And the devil. They all are arrayed against the saints. There is an enemy that we fight. And it isn't flesh and blood. It's not other people. It's spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That's what the scripture says. Amen? Mm -hmm. Philippians 4.13, Paul writes and he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. How many things can you do through him, Paul? All things. You mean to tell me you can live this Christian life? You mean to tell me a husband can love his wife like Christ loved the church? You mean to tell me a wife can be subject to her husband? You mean to tell me that a father can live his life without provoking his children to anger? And that a father can bring his children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? You mean to tell me that we can be imitators of Christ? And that we can be kind and forgiving and live a life of love? You mean to tell me we can be careful how we live and walk in wisdom? You mean to tell me these things can happen? Yes, they can. Paul says, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Amen? Amen. God doesn't leave us as orphans. He doesn't pick up the dusty sinner off the road and brush him off and send him on his way alone. No, he clothes him in divine robes of splendor and empowers him with his spirit even to live inside and to change us from the inside out. Amen? Paul says to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You see, this is a theme in the Scriptures. Be strong in the Lord. Right? Turn with me to the book of Joshua. book of Joshua. You ever hear those terms in the New Testament? Be strong in the Lord. Think about Joshua chapter 1. Because there you have an exhortation from God to Joshua. To be strong. Because you remember that when Joshua gets commissioned there, that he's to go in and take the remaining parts of the land, the promised land. 
So you remember what that consists of? Let me, let me give you a little uh, history lesson here, right? What does it consist of for Joshua to go in and take the remaining parts of the land? He's got to go in after these giants who live there and overcome them with sword and with spear. And God tells him, I want you to go in there, Joshua, and I want you to take that land. Right? It's a battle. It's a warfare. You with me? Joshua is being commanded by God to be strong and courageous in the face of warfare. And he says, go in, he says, and take the land. Joshua 1, he says, Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the sons of Israel. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do all, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may be, may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Amen? You see... You see this principle in the scripture of being strong and courageous in the midst of battle? You know what Joshua and the Canaanites is a type of in the Christian life? It's a type of you, the Christian, going in and overcoming the flesh. And those Canaanites are seen as that which is vile, that which is wicked, that which is evil, that which is profanes and corrupts the land. God said they've become so evil that the land is going to vomit them out. How's that going to happen? He's going to send his people in to take possession of it. Why? Because of the exceeding wickedness of the people who are there. Right? It's a type in the Christian life of the flesh. It's a type of the sinful nature of discord and anger and grief and sexual immorality and stealing and every kind of vile thing you can think of. And God is telling us, like he tells Joshua, be strong and courageous so that you can take your stand against the enemy. This is a theme in the Bible. First Chronicles 28 and 20. 
David or uh, David is giving Solomon instructions to build the temple and says, Then David said to his son Solomon, Be strong and courageous and act. Do not fear nor be dismayed, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. It's a theme throughout the Bible. To be strong in the Lord. Why? Because God is with you. Right? Paul exhorts the Ephesians in this warfare. He says, be strong in the Lord. And then he says this, in the strength of his might. Now think about what Paul is saying. He's not just saying, be strong in the Lord, but he wants to remind you what that means. He says, in the strength of his might. Now consider, what power must Paul be referring to now? The power of God. Amen? What kind of power is that? power that raised Jesus from the dead. Amen. Where'd you come up with that, Rosie? Yeah, I think that's in Ephesians. <laughs> yeah, Ephesians 1, verse 20, right? Right? Let's look there. What's it say? Ephesians 1, right? Verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what, what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that can be named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Right? You see what he says there? That that power, verse 19, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. You see, Paul already taught the Ephesians earlier in the book that God's power was their resource. That God's power was their resource. And that's why he says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. God's power is mighty. Consider, if one finds themselves with the strength of the living God, what foe could stand? As Paul describes in Romans 8, what does he say there? He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Amen? Think about that. You know, an earthly king may have power. But an earthly king's power consists in the strength of his army. You with me? So that if somebody overcomes the army of that earthly king, then that earthly king's kingship shall fall. But not that way with God. Consider with God that God's power is in himself. And God looks to no one for power because he himself is the Almighty. God is not dependent on anything or anybody, but in Himself is the omnipotent, almighty God. He possesses all power. He possesses all dominion. He possesses all authority. And this, Paul says to the Ephesians, is the power that we are to be strong in. Amen? Christian, when you think about what God has given you, you can't fail. You cannot fail in this great struggle 
if you do what God says. The resources are inexhaustible. They are surpassing riches. They're transcendent. They're far beyond anything we can ask or think. The power of God to live the Christian life is available to us. The question is, shall we avail ourselves of it? Because, you see, Paul's talking to the Christians. He says, you, Christian, you be strong in the Lord. You see, it's something you got to do. You've got to avail yourself of God's strength. You've got to avail yourself of God's power. You've got to put on the armor of God. It's not just going to jump up off the floor and land on you. You've got to avail yourself of the sword of the Spirit. You've got to put on the helmet of salvation. It's not to say that God hasn't divinely called you to Himself. Of course He has. It's not to say that God hasn't worked salvation. Of course He has. But have you not responded? Have you not reached out to take His gift of grace? Or like He says to Joshua, have I not commanded you to go in and take the land? Has God not commanded you husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church? Has He not commanded all you Christians to be an imitator of God, therefore, and live a life of love? Has He not commanded us all to put off the old self and to put on the new self, which is being renewed after after the image of its Creator? Has He not commanded us to walk as He did? to live as He lived, to love as He loved? Has He not commanded us all these things? He has. And then He has availed us of His divine resources in order to do it. Now remember why all of this is happening. Because we are a people to the praise of God's glory. Because there are heavenly spectators who are looking down upon our lives In our lives, it's through our lives, now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is being made known to the principalities and powers. In fact, we are in a great struggle against them. Why is there so much evil in the world? Have you ever stopped to consider? I mean, you know, you see some vile thing that's going on in the world. You know, I I don't know if you remember years ago, there was a a great uh, civil war in Rwanda. Remember that? Many of you might be familiar with some of the things that went on there. There were hundreds of thousands of people that were literally hacked to death with machetes. You know, great evil takes place in the world around us. You ever stop to consider what must be going on? How does that happen? What what in the world is taking place here? It's a great struggle taking place on the face of this earth. Great struggle. Amen? You know, sometimes I think we have it so good in, our, in the safety and the freedom that we have as American citizens, we, we don't really always taste the full flavor of the evil that really exists in the world. Right? And, of course, we're just talking about the evil of warfare. <laughs> right? Not to mention there are many, many evils at work in our culture, in our society, waging war 
against men and seeking to drag them into perdition, seeking to drag them into hell. This is a great and a powerful enemy that we fight. But listen, Paul says that we can stand in the strength of God's might. What shall overcome us if we are availed of the power and authority of the sovereign king himself? Think about it. But how will you ever wage war against such an enemy in your own strength? You can't do it. It has to happen by faith. If you're going to live the Christian life and be obedient to God, you have to do it by faith. You have to do it by trusting in God for His strength and for His power and for His wisdom and for His guidance and for His provision and His good grace to carry you through. You see, the battle belongs to the Lord. Amen? Right? The battle belongs to the Lord. He says in chapter 6, verse 11, look what Paul says here. He says, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might, and put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Okay, now, in these verses, Paul's going to start describing our enemy. He's going to start describing the warfare that we're fighting. And he's going to give us some insight into this very thing that we Christians are involved in in our daily lives. You see, don't get the idea that because there's all this heavenly language here, that this stuff is all abstract and it's all far off in heaven. This is the very struggle that you're fighting in your home. This is the very struggle that you're fighting in your marriage. This is the very struggle that you're fighting in your workplace. It's the very struggle that you're fighting wherever you go and whatever you do to be a people to the praise of God's glory. So that you have all these relationships in right order. So that you are subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And that indeed you are living a life of love and kindness and patience. And that you're armed with the truth. This is a daily struggle that we fight. Paul's giving us a description of it in heavenly language. He's giving us some insight into what's really taking place. Okay, He says, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against what? The schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. Right? What is it against, Paul? The rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore... Take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand. Okay? So Paul goes into this whole discussion about how we equip ourselves and who the enemy is and how the enemy fights. And he gives us a great uh, demonstration of this battle that we fight. Remember how I was telling you that you can't just read right by these things in Scripture. But you need to stop and consider what's being said and meditate upon these things. Is it a reality to you that when you're in, a, in, a, in an argument with your spouse and people are getting angry and tempers are flying, 
Is it evident to you that there is a great struggle that's taking place against spiritual forces of wickedness? Have you ever stopped to consider what's going on when you're at work and you've got that very difficult employer and that thing day in and day out is just railing against you? Or, you know, many of us have have struggles with physical ailments, right? And we fight all kinds of different battles every day. Have you ever stopped to think that the warfare really isn't against flesh and blood? But there's a grand scheme of things that's taking place. And there is a cunning, crafty enemy that seeks to tempt you and cause you to sin which is how you lose in this battle. Amen? He says here, put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. Now, think about what Paul's saying here. He's saying, look, Christian, be strong in God's strength and put on the full armor of God. Right? Here Paul instructs the Christian to put on the full armor of God. This suggests that we have a real responsibility to avail ourselves of the great devices which God has provided for us in this warfare. We must put them on. We must put them on. And that's what I'm saying about stopping and considering what your Bible says. Don't just read, put on the full armor of God. And the first thing you're thinking, oh, the armor of God. Here we are, the armor of God. And you missed the first two words. Put on. you got to put it on. <laughs> right? You have a responsibility in this warfare with this armor. So, you know, we'll go through all this grand discussion of what Paul means, right? The breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and the shoes of the gospel of peace and the sword of the Spirit and the helmet of salvation. And we go through and we, we understand what all this stuff is. And what good does it do us if we don't put it on? Amen? Amen. And so we have to see that we have, a, we have a responsibility. God has given us a provision in the battle. But we have got to avail ourselves of it. Amen? I mean, three quarters of the New Testament are instructions about how we suit up and do what we're supposed to do as Christians. It's all practical instruction about how we live this life to glorify God in the place that He has put us we got to put on the armor. Romans 13, 12 and following, Paul, there, he says, The night is almost gone. The day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light, he says. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. But put on, he says, the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. This is a theme in Paul's writing that the Christian has to put him on, to put on the new man, to put off the old man. Amen? And in this, and in this case, Paul's using the analogy of warfare and he's going to talk about this armor of God, which frankly is righteousness and truth. Right? And salvation and all of these good blessings of God, we have to avail ourselves of them. We have to put them on. Further, he tells us to put on 
the full armor of God. This is to say all of it. All of the armor. The full armor. The complete armor. The Greek word used here is the word panoplia. How many of you have heard the word panoply? The word panoply is an English word to describe complete. Or, uh, you know, like uh, um, some people talk about the panoply of Scripture. And what they mean by that is what the whole Bible says, right? The whole Bible, the whole panoply of Scripture. Well, that comes from this Greek word, panoplia. But specifically, the Greek word panoplia is talking about armor. It's talking about that suit which a soldier wears on the battlefield. The panoplia was everything that the soldier wore in battle, okay? And that's why the word gets translated the full armor of God and not just the armor of God. Those words, the full armor, is two English words. It's one Greek word, panoplia. Panoplia describes the entire suit of armor used in warfare of those days and means the full or whole armor. Therefore, Paul contends that we should readily employ the protection that God has granted us in this great warfare of the Christian life. Paul's saying, look, Christian, you've got to put it on. Put on the whole armor of God. Don't just put on part of it. Right? Don't just get on the helmet of salvation and then walk out into the battlefield and somebody stabs you right in the chest. Right? Put on the breastplate too. And gird up your loins with the belt of truth, he says. And put on the gospel shoes, right? We'll talk about what all that is, but the point is is that you gotta put it on. And you gotta put all of it on. Not just pick the pieces you want, right? He will now go on to describe what the armor or protection is in detail. Not only this. But get this about the armor. It is the full armor of God. It's not the armor of men. It's the armor of God. Whose armor is it? It's God's armor. So I want to ask you this question. If God gives you armor, you suppose it's good armor? You suppose it's going to achieve its objective? Yeah? Again, we see the provision of God. You know, if God is for you, who can be against you? You know, if you put on the breastplate of righteousness and you gird up your loins with the belt of truth and you wear the gospel uh, shoes, right? And you take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith, are you going to fail? And even in the midst of all that clanking armor, And I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Thou art with me. Amen? I mean, you're not just in the battlefield alone with God's armor. Of course, that would be enough. (laughs) But God is with you. Amen? And you're being strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Right? You know, it's interesting to me. We talk all about this great provisions of God, and we talk about being strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. But do us Christians really realize how to implement this in our daily life? 
and to truly be a people to the praise of God's glorious grace and to overcome our sins and to put off the old man and to put on the old man and to stop striving with anger and discord and jealousy and immorality and all other kinds of vile sins for which the wrath of God is coming. And do we really learn how to put on the patience and the kindness and the gentleness and the love and the wisdom of God our Savior? You know, God's given us so much. How, how, how can we do anything less? You know, if His grace is so amazing and His provisions are so complete then we truly ought to be a people to the praise of God's glory. We ought to finally learn how to put the flesh to flight. And we ought to cooperate with God in that sanctification process so that we are changed and become like the Lord Jesus Christ, holy and blameless. Amen? It's not just a bunch of noise. It's who you are, if indeed you are in Christ. Amen? This armor is the armor of God. It is not the armor of men. It is not carnal. It is not worldly. It is not earthly. But it is spiritual and divinely furnished to equip us with everything that good armor can provide. 2 Corinthians 10.3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. What's Paul saying? He's saying the weapons that you fight, the Christian struggle with, are divinely powerful. They are filled with the power of God so that we can overcome. Amen? Listen, it's the armor of God. All you got to do is put it on. Amen? You know, God gives you a Bible. And that's a wonderful, awesome blessing, far beyond anything we could possibly comprehend. But if you leave it on the coffee table, it isn't going to do you any good. Amen? You know, he tells Joshua, go in there and take the land and be strong and courageous. But what else does he tell him? He tells him, be careful to meditate on this book day and night and do not let the law of the words that are in this book depart from your mouth so that you may be very careful to do all that is written therein. Amen? Joshua's got to do that part. He's got to meditate on the word. He's got to let that word transform his mind and his thinking. And he can't let it depart from his mouth right same with us we got to put on the full armor of God we've got to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might we by faith have to lay hold of that strength of God we by faith have to take up that suit of armor we've got to avail ourselves of the truth we've got to avail ourselves of God's righteousness Amen. He says there, put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Here Paul makes us well aware 
that we have a real foe in the devil. That is Satan. He is the enemy against which we must be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might if we hope to stand. Our ruthless adversary is described in many places in the New Testament. Like, for instance, 1 Peter 5.8. There Peter says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Consider that your enemy is one who is prowling around seeking someone to devour. Amen? But remember that this isn't an earthly enemy. This isn't a carnal enemy. This this is an enemy that is a spiritual enemy. And when he devours somebody, he's not eating flesh and blood. It's not like a lion. You pull out a gun and shoot him. This is an enemy who has schemes and methods and carefully devised wiles by which he comes and ambushes and secretly overtakes you in the darkness when you're not paying attention. The enemy that the Christian fights is seeking someone to devour by leading them into temptation so that they would sin against God and thus become the enemy of God. Right? We'll end with this. just want to tell you a little bit about Satan. In Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, he is called the great dragon. There it says, And there was a war in heaven, a war in heaven, an angelic conflict. Right? Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels waged war. And they were not strong enough. And there was no longer a place found for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan. Who deceives the whole world. Was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. Okay, There in Revelation he is called the great dragon the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. Okay? In John 12, 31, Jesus says this, Now judgment is upon this world, and now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. Okay? Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. In 1 John, John writing, and he says this in chapter 5, verse 18, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who was born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Okay, here in 1 John, he's called the evil one, and the scripture says that the whole world lies in his power. That's what Jesus meant when he called him the ruler of this world. Okay? That's what John said in Revelation when he said that Satan deceives the whole world. Amen? 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3 and following says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Here, He is called the God of this world. And the Scripture says that He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they cannot see the Gospel. He's the blinder. He's a God of this world who blinds unbelievers. That's what the Scripture says about Him. He's a great dragon, a serpent of old, a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. He's a vile, wicked being. Ephesians 2 says that he is the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Let me tell you, there is an angelic conflict going on. And there is a very powerful enemy who is roaming around seeking for someone to devour. But, good Christian, take hope. Because your God is mighty. More mighty than all of his enemies. And you have become the subject of his love and of his grace and of his salvation. And you shall be saved from your enemies, says the Lord. When God is good and ready, listen to what he does with the devil. Revelation 20, 1 and following. And I saw an angel coming down from heaven. You think the, you think the devil is a tough angel? How about this guy? I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he should not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. God's got angels much more powerful than Satan who come with a chain when they're good and ready and bind him up. Okay? So, although we have a very powerful enemy who has a whole authority structure, as we're going to see when it uses these terms, he can't stand against God. And if we are strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, we will have strength to stand. And if we put on the full armor of God, we shall be arrayed in the battle with provisions ample for the fight. Amen? Is it true? Then we should have good hope and we should have good courage to live this Christian life that we've been called to and to be a people to the praise of God's glorious grace. Amen? God help us. God help us. We are in a war. We are in a great struggle. Nobody's a stranger to the battle. Amen? But remember that God is the one who will see you through. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Father, oh Lord, we praise you and we thank you for these holy words. God, I pray that as we go about our days this week, that you would open our eyes to see clearly this warfare that we are in. God, help us to, to recall how you have instructed us in your word about the, the, the enemy that we fight, the, the, uh, the way that he wages war. God, help us to see clearly his schemes and not to be overcome by them, Lord. Grant us your wisdom. Grant us your guidance. Grant us your strength, God, that we might be strong in the midst of this fight. I pray, God, that wherever we are ignorant, that you would open our eyes and cause us to see, Lord, 
cause us, God, to see the truth and to embrace it and to listen to it and to follow it. We thank you, Lord, for your great love to us. We thank you for your holy word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.